Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Dive, the official podcast of The Diamondback at the University of Maryland. I'm Hallie Miller, and from all of us here, thank you for listening. One of the benefits of working at a place like The Diamondback is getting to learn and collaborate with some of the best and most creative writers and artists on campus. I've personally always been really awestruck by the non-journalistic accomplishments of our staff, in addition to the journalistic ones as well. Our multimedia editor is a senior named Julia Reed, who goes by Jay. I've had the pleasure of working with Jay for the last two years. She's not only a fabulous editor and a really good photographer, but also an insanely good up-and-coming musician. This is Jay's track, Follow My Lead. Listening to this track, I started to get really interested in what Jay thought about the music industry. How it's changed, how it's evolved, what her muses are. Somehow we got to talking about the relationship between musicians and drugs, and as it turns out, is more extensive than you might think. So I asked Jay if she could look into it for us. That's what's up next. After that, some of us in the newsroom played a little game called Musical Secret Santa. We had a lot of fun doing it, so be sure to stick around until the end. But first, here's Jay Reed on Music and Drugs. Feeling blue, it's the worst you can do. The relationship between music and drugs is complex. Music and musicians seem to both flourish and fall under the influence of drugs. While the music itself may not suffer, the music community has. From recreational to lethal, drugs have made an impact on music in many different ways. What you're about to listen to is a drug trend history framed through popular music. was Reefer Man. 1930s jazz was all about cannabis. Like other musicians that indulge, many of the main jazz stars smoked and wrote about it. I'm not talking stoned out of their minds, but as Fats Waller said, mighty myth but not too strong. Marijuana was only made fully illegal in 1937, after the Marijuana Tax Act. Like other drugs, there was a frenzy of media-induced hysteria around the drug that really only became known as marijuana after the Mexican Revolution, which brought over a wave of Mexican immigrants that called the drug marijuana. The first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry Anslinger, created an anti-drug policy that grimly foreshadowed Reagan's war on drugs. He ignited an arguably racist hysteria around marijuana, the characteristically nonviolent and non-lethal drug. And jazz music was associated with the hysteria as well. But the jazz community was also dealing with a more serious drug issue. Many jazz musicians, including icons such as Billie Holiday and Charlie Parker, struggled with heroin and other drug addictions. Billie Holiday and Charlie Parker would both die young due to drug and alcohol abuse, as would many other jazz musicians during that time. And this kind of helps illustrate the idea of a high-functioning addict. 
something the music community has hosted and welcomed for ages. We're in the 50s now, and this was the seemingly simple, kiddish, and charming Dion DiMucci, the lonely teenager, wanderer, but first high school dropout. While he was singing lighthearted songs, Dion would spend most of his career struggling with addiction, and it's not uncommon. How many other simple-versed young high school blowout stars can we name that have also struggled with drug abuse? I would say that a lot of today's SoundCloud rappers do. I'll skip ahead to the 60s, because how could I not stop there? Society can't help but romanticize the 60s and early 70s. With the vision of Woodstock in mind, people think of doing drugs as cathartic and eye-opening. On the back burner, people are aware of the serious drug issues that riddled the Woodstock generation of musicians. But there's definitely more of a positive outlook on this time period's use of drugs. And sure, the hallucinogenic LSD-inspired artists wrote some of the most charismatic and colorful songs. The Beatles, Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds, paints a colorful, trippy, fictional scene, likely, very likely, inspired by LSD, as the song title literally creates an acronym for LSD. The lyrics are nothing short of a trippy Dr. Seuss novel. I mean, you can almost feel your brain spinning to the pattern of the girl with the kaleidoscope eyes. And the whole Brian Wilson and Beach Boys call and answer via pet sounds to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, that was incredible. This competition pushed a different kind of music forward. It's pretty sick. Definitely had some trippy drug undertones, but this is one of those situations where drugs can be associated with innovating music. But was Brian Wilson, Beach Boys' lead songwriter and overall genius, better off for his LSD usage? No. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Wilson said, I've told a lot of people, don't take psychedelic drugs. It's mentally dangerous to take. I regret having taken LSD. It's a bad drug. For Wilson, drug abuse and mental health went hand in hand and heightened each other. This is very common with musicians to this day. And then there's Jimi Hendrix, who rose the bar and spoke through his guitar. It takes a lot to make a mainstream audience mesmerized by an instrument alone, but Jimmy did it. This wild but technical, fast, aggressive music would set a new bar for rock and roll. And Janis Joplin, whose voice, like Jimmy's guitar, was amazing, but emotional, technical, but harsh, all at the same time. Something no average person can do. Jimmy and Janis changed rock and roll, and will go down in history as some of the most iconic musicians. Fortunately, both Jimmy and Janice would die from drug-related causes, both at 27. Remember when I said that the music might not suffer, even if the musicians do? This kind of shows that. I'm going to move quickly through the end of the 60s and duration of the 70s because I want to spend some time in the 1980s and 90s. The 1970s were a mix of drugs and some musicians were high in space. That was David Bowie singing an out-of-world song about being out of this world. 
the glam rock icon, the man too good for this world that he literally belonged in space, was also an avid Coke user. And he talked openly and honest about it. Anywhere from calling it his soulmate to talking openly about his struggles with addiction. And before I continue, I want to clarify that this history isn't meant to undercut the genius of an artist, the beauty of an album, or the progress that music has made. It's supposed to show that drug use is complicated. It's a coping mechanism that is very common in the creative sphere of music. And of course, there's amazing musicians that never use drugs. I'm not here trying to prove a causation relationship, but rather bring some reasonable sense to a relationship that audiences have generally been desensitized to. Now I'll bring us to the 1980s and 90s, because there is a lot going on. On one hand, you have this group of self-deprecating grunge punks, focusing on issues related to depression and addiction. This group romanticized with labels like Heroin Chic, which is a rather toxic romanticization for a group of people openly expressing their deteriorating mental health. Kurt Cobain, someone often labeled as heroin chic, was an openly struggling individual, a music icon and also heroin addict. He would eventually kill himself, and it's tragic, but it's also a tragedy that people love to romanticize. People romanticize the relationship between drugs and music in general. On the other hand, the 1980s and 90s documented an extremely important and ongoing societal tale told through hip-hop. The hip-hop and rap genre was, and still is, a musical movement that calls out injustice. I only played a small clip, but it's impossible to compete with Run DMC's own 1984 analysis, even in hindsight. Hip-hop explained what was inexplicable to many middle and upper class people in the 80s and 90s. Things were, and still are, unfair in terms of policy, racism, and inequality. And the targeted communities were resilient and said, that's the way it is. But people still had to provide for themselves and support their families. And selling drugs, specifically crack, was in many ways a logical solution. But what came next in policy was anything but. There's a new epidemic, smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. In the 80s and 90s, crack cocaine was being sold and consumed. And like the jazz era's reefer panic, sensationalized rhetoric would play a large role in creating hysteria over crack. Drug criminals were convicted. This time, the hysteria would be driven by the war on drugs, from the Reagan administration to the Bush administration. In this 1993 song, Wu-Tang Clan lays out the honest reality of making money and surviving in an era of policy that would sentence someone 100 times harsher for selling crack than cocaine. The lyrics tell a story about the harsh realities of incarceration and the disparities of punishment for a white and black person. Cops and crack rocks and straight shots All on the block that stays hot 
Rapp was a critic of the government in ways the media wasn't. And analysis on the Reagan era and the war on drugs is still carried on by the next generation of rappers, like Kendrick Lamar, Vince Staples, Joey Badass, and more. In between the 90s and now, the sentiment has been similar. Sprinkle in some EDM drugs like Molly. Lean was really popular for a while. Weed has always been a song subject. Coke, Adderall, Xanax. These are a lot of the drugs that I've noticed in pop culture during my lifetime. It seems that Xanax is the latest and more dangerous drug affecting the music community. It seems that drugs will always be a part of the music community. Musicians are resilient, emotional, but human, despite seeming immortal. The relationship between music and drugs isn't just one thing, good, bad, or evil. It's just there. It's subject to change and affects musicians differently. But one thing's for sure. Through all of it, the music survives. That was Jay Reed on music and drugs. And talking about music, I've been thinking a lot lately about how devastating it can be to share your top picks with someone, only to have them absolutely hate it. It's happened to me so many times where I've put my heart on my sleeve about something I grew up listening to, and the person's response would just be like, oh, um, interesting. It can also be really awkward as a reviewer to listen to something that you know has shaped someone else and their taste and just not really know how to tell them that, yeah, um, I just really didn't get it. So a bunch of us got together and said, what if we each submitted an album anonymously and reviewed someone else's without knowing whose it was we were listening to? We called it Musical Secret Santa, and as you might expect, the selections, just like the staff that comprises this organization, are extremely diverse and eclectic, and I'll be upfront and say I've only heard of three or four of these artists before this whole thing happened. I definitely feel a little bit more educated now. I hope you feel the same. Up first, our editor-in-chief, Minna Hack, listened to Currents by Tame Impala. It was the choice of Jordan Katz, who works on our engagement desk and is a Terps watch writer. Here's Minna. So I've been meaning to get into Tame Impala for a really long time. I had heard nothing but good things. Um, I just kept forgetting. So I'm really glad that I was sort of forced to listen to Currents on a really strict deadline because that was clearly the only way it was going to happen. Um, but I don't think I was missing a whole lot. The album was, it was nice. It was like fine, pleasant, but all the songs were so hard for me to differentiate. They literally all sounded like they were recorded underwater and that just didn't really do it for me. I felt like negative emotions while listening to it. It's not to say there weren't some really good songs. Let It Happen is super soothing and The Less I Know The Better is really fun, but most of the album is just really forgettable. I should probably listen to it again because sometimes it takes like seven listens for something to really grow on me, but there's a good chance I never will, and this will just be my opinion forever. Minna's choice was pretty predictable. Its recipient, well, he didn't hate it. Alright, hey, I'm Max and I edit opinions for the Diamondback, um, and I reviewed Harry Styles' eponymous debut record. 
uh, Styles, uh, whom we all know as by far the best former member of One Direction, has reworked himself into something of a capital R, capital S rock star. And I really wanted to like this album, not least because my boss and uh, editor Minahak told me, quote, be nice or you're fired. Um, and, I, and I did like it. Styles is a, a strong singer, he's a competent lyricist, he's a very, very charming person. He has really good politics, and he wears nice clothes. And some of these, these tracks on the album, like uh, Carolina and Meet Me in the Hallway, are they're big, they're expansive, they're well-constructed, and, and they're a ton of fun. But since the record is, in many ways, a, a nostalgia trip for fans of, like, 70s-era dad rock, if you, like me, are not a huge dad rock fan, you might be a bit left wanting, because there just isn't a ton sonically new on this album. So uh, anyway, I, I hope I was nice enough to Harry for me to keep my job. And here's Jordan on Max's pick. I'm reviewing Habit by Snail Mail. The songs really didn't have much variety, and that was the first thing that stood out to me. They all sounded pretty similar, both in terms of the instruments used and the tempo. It felt like it had a pretty slow tempo. The songs were very calm, but had a melancholy feel to them, I would say. So it's definitely not something you would play to get people excited at a party. I thought Lindsay Jordan, who sings all the songs on the album, has a really nice singing voice. Ultimately, this music isn't really up my alley as far as my taste in music, but if you like indie music, I would definitely recommend it. We had our Diversions editor, Patrick Basler, review 17 by, I'm going to butcher this, Extentacion, <laughs> courtesy of Casey Camerly from our engagement desk. The good news is that Extentacion 17 is only 21 minutes long. The bad news is that I would have rather spent those 21 minutes watching an episode of The Big Bang Theory, because in that case, there's a chance I could accidentally laugh or something at least uh, 17 is definitely the most vapid collection of music to ever get a twitter recommendation from kendrick lamar and if i ever run into kendrick at a target i will be sure to ask him what the fuck he was thinking at the beginning of the album xxx says i put my all into this in the hopes that it will help cure or at least numb your depression and not only does it numb depression it numbs every thought and feeling you've ever had for the 21 minutes you listen to it it sounds like the hold music for the world's least effective suicide hotline. And it's not a rap album, despite him being a rapper, but imagine if Creed made a concept album about being an edgy teenager. And the whole thing sounds the same, too. Uh, when Trippy Red shows up on the song Fuck Love, it's exciting just because he's something different, and that's hard to do in 21 minutes. The album is covered in lines like, I'm the only one tired of having fake friends. Put the noose on my neck and in my grave, I'll rot. And on top of that, it is very hard to cry along with an alleged domestic abuser, no matter how much he wants you to. Here's Diversions writer Allison O'Reilly on Patrick's Choice. I received the album Bad Vibes by Shlomo. I was pretty shocked the first time I listened because the album has no lyrics, and I was totally anticipating some sort of rap or electronic music to come through the speakers. That said, I think the music is really cool, and I decided to listen to it while in the studying and homework zone over the past few weeks. Bad Vibes by Shlomo is a relaxing set of songs, but not boring by any means. The tunes gently integrate all sorts of instruments and sounds to create music that fills the space without overpowering it. 
The light percussion in each track really carries the beat and keeps the song on track. Even though they have no words, somehow each song on Bad Vibes matches its title perfectly. For example, the song I Can't See You, I'm Dead is very solemn and eerie and conveys that message of death through sound alone. Casey Camerly from our engagement desk from before reviewed staff writer Jeff Roscoe's pick. Outer space, motherfucker. Alright, Casey Camerly here reviewing an album that I'd previously never heard of called Sovereign Nose of Your Arrogant Face by a dude that I've never heard of called Scallops Hotel. Uh, yeah, before listening, I kind of thought that this was just going to be some weird hipster shit that I would not like at all, but I was dead wrong. This dude's, uh, he's super smooth, super relaxed. Um, yeah, I think he's just one guy, but and he, he just articulates his raps really well. Uh, he's got a very calming voice, which blends perfectly with the smooth beats. Um, overall, it's just really well produced. It's only uh, 23 minutes long, 11 tracks. And yeah, lyrically, the guy's very meticulous. Uh, he's, he's metaphorical. He's, he's very, uh, very enjoyable to listen to. And yeah, it's a refreshing break from your mainstream rappers and trap artists talking about fucking bitches and getting money. So yeah, I definitely recommend this album. I'd, I'd give it a solid 8 out of 10. Uh, yeah, go check it out. At the eulogy, shit. Jack reviewed Donuts by Jay Dilla, which he's been a fan of for a long time. It was selected by Diversions writer Cam Niemand. On the surface, Jay Dilla's Donuts is a super unique sample-based instrumental hip-hop album, full of crazy good songs like Lightworks and Thunder. But then you find out Dilla was on his deathbed from a rare blood disorder when he was recording the album, and all of the album's odd little details make more sense. It's 31 tracks long because he was 31 years old at the time of its recording and his death. The first track is called Donuts Outro because the album is his outro to the world. And vocal samples like I can't stand to see you cry on Don't Cry or You Better Stop and Think About What You're Doing on Stop are really messages to his family and fans since music was the only way he could communicate with them. It's amazing. Everything takes on a different meaning and it sticks with you for a really long time. I would recommend everyone give this album a listen. Do it for Dilla. Cam reviewed Microcastle by Deer Hunter, which was selected by Aria, our copy desk chief. Microcastle slash weird era C-O-N-T dot, which I believe stands for continued. Crazy album. Crazy, crazy album. Admittedly had never listened to Deer Hunter prior to this recommendation. Um, I'd describe it as sort of like Mac DeMarco meets David Bowie meets Toro Imoa meets the weird stretchy Laffy Taffy machine thing and um, what's it called? Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Um, really cool album. I like how it exists as kind of one solid piece despite being so many different noises the crazy seamless transition in between cavalry scars and green jacket was beautiful and yeah i have a new band that i like i give this i this a four out of four album honestly for the genre it exists in it's beautiful you lose kind of your like sense of time while you're listening it's just one of those albums you can kind of float in 
It's like the sound I feel like Kid Cudi wants to make, but doesn't. Peace. Aria got managing editor Jack Pashadis. The album I got was Sad Clown, Bad Summer 9 by Atmosphere. Atmosphere, if you've never heard of them before, like me, is a Minnesota-based white hip-hop duo comprised of Ant, a producer, and Slug, a rapper. A strange combo, sure, but much like fries dipped in a milkshake, the scary part is that it actually works. The EP is 15 minutes of my man Slug rapping about what seems like an actually pretty good summer, chasing girls, getting chased by the cops, all the while backed by this J. Dilla-like, sultry, electronic hip-hop beat. It reminded me of kind of a lost sense of my high school innocence, which hit close to home given I'm recording this on a gray day while it's raining outside in my college library. Overall, I give it a solid 7. Thanks to whoever recommended this, I'll be sure to check out more atmosphere in the future. Hit me dead in the eye like it's mad that I gave half the day to last night. And Jack took on a behemoth, which came from photographer extraordinaire Tom Hausman. For my album review, I was assigned Zero by Aphex Twin. It runs an hour and four minutes, and it is confusing. In my defense, Aphex Twin makes no effort to make this album accessible to anybody who doesn't already know him and his genre. The titles of the songs are some combination of letters and numbers that don't really make any sense to me. It's Aphex Twin's first studio album since 2001, when he released Drugs. I, I don't know how to say it. It's just another album from 2001. And throughout this album, it feels like Aphex is still stuck in the 90s. But once you get past trying to pin down exactly what you're listening to, or even why you're listening to it, it's an awesome, intricate album. Each song is built around a complex loop, with each layer adding significant depth. It's probably the first album I've listened to, where each time I listen, I find a new and pleasing sound or melody somewhere in the background. My favorite example of this is the last song, I'm not even going to try to say the name, which is a near exact opposite of the rest of the album. It starts with chirpings of a rainforest in the background, and a piano slowly builds a melody throughout. If you know Aphex Twin, your mind is probably already made up, but if not, it's worth listening. certainly not least, Tom got Diversions writer Ayana Archie's choice. Hi, my name is Tom Hausman. I love a concept album. When a conceptual piece is done and done well, it can be the pinnacle of musical creativity. Janelle Monae's Metropolis, The Chase is an intriguing introduction to her Metropolis series. Following the rogue android Cindy Mayweather on her escape, we are transported to a distant future where Cindy's crime of falling in love with a human is punishable by disassembly. This theme feels extremely poignant, as details about Monae's own love life and her bisexual anthem Make Me Feel have come out in 2018. The Chase EP is a really solid release, and the standout song, Many Moons, is a fun and playful song on its own, but fits snugly into the story arc of the five-song EP. The funky beats on The Chase meet Monet's style eye-to-eye as she raps, doo-ops, and croons her way through Mayweather's escape, capture, and eventual destruction. The EP closes as one might expect a Marvel film to. Our hero is dead, the credits have rolled, but what? She's alive and ready to fight. The Chase is an incredible extended play that works just as well whether listened to in or out of context.
So whether you agree or agree to disagree with any of these hot takes you just heard, we'd love to hear from you. So let us know what you think on Twitter or on the official Diamondback Facebook page. We hope this got you thinking about music and the way it unites us and divides us. Or, I don't know, maybe one of these albums will accompany you on that long car or plane ride to get you where you need to go over spring break. That's how I feel anyway. Cheers. Cheers.